0: Netflix.com podcast. Welcome to another Britflix podcast. Today we're talking England is Mine with uh, director writer uh, Mark Gill. Hello, Mark.
1: Hi, Stuart. How are you?
0: I'm all right. I'm all right. Well, it's it's kind of like this is this is a long time since uh, <laughs> since we met the first time, which was uh, at a short film night in some old warehouse building in Bethnal Green.
1: I do, all I can remember that about that night is that it was the weather was horrific. It was, it so was. I can just remember about the, the weather being like what was about being at home. Really. I was going to
0: say, you literally <laughs> brought Manchester to East London. You
1: yeah. Which you seem to do everywhere.
0: <laughs> so let's. Before we go into anything else, uh, England is mine. Do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what that is so people can know what it's about?
1: Yeah, uh, England's mine is um, a. Story based on the early life of uh, Morrissey before he joined the Smiths. Um, yeah, so it, it is, it would fall under biopic, but what I've tried to do is just make a film that you know, sort of elevates. Uh, I wanted a film that could just relate to anybody, but yeah, it's, pretty, it's very much that period from 1976 to 82. Um, that six year period when he was trying to be in bands and trying to make it as something in Manchester. Okay.
0: Well, look, before we go into detail about getting that film made, let's just go back a step to uh, the short film that I saw in Bethnal Green when I first met you well, a lot while ago. And it's funny, because I, mem- I remember you saying, yeah, I'm going to do this, uh, this Morrissey biopic. And I'm like, thinking, oh, that's a brave move. And here you are. So congratulations.
1: Thank you.
0: Um, <clears throat> so the film you were showing in Bethnal Green was called The Vorman Problem. Yeah. Which... Um, has got that title works on lots of levels doesn't it really given how the the problems you went through to get it made um but first first off to me, i mean and it's a film that ended up i mean its success was it ended up being um BAFTA and oscar nominated this short film so that's you know that's that's a rare achievement for a lot of filmmakers, for a few filmmakers so uh congratulations on that front um but just just there's a couple of things in the story I remember from the q and a that'd be good to sort of get on the podcast to uh so the first bit is obviously Martin Freeman and Tom Holland are starring in your short film, mm. which is which is no mean feat, I do believe. So yes. Do you want to do you want to let people know like how you how you managed to cast such such a stellar cast in your short film?
1: Um, because nobody, well, I'll be honest with you, nobody told me I couldn't do it, and I think you know I come from the punk city essentially, and I, even though punk was well before my time. Yeah. With me and Baldwin, just believed in our script so much that, and he'd found me the money of a private investor, Baldwin, uh, and uh, who's my producer, and he just said, you know, this is so good, we should just go for the best that we can get. And it actually came about because I was, I think I was just at home one night, and Seven was actually on terrestrial television. Right. I just thought, oh, Kevin Spacey would be brilliant to play Warman so I mentioned this to Baldwin and he says right well he's the creative director of the Old Vic so let's just contact him and ask him so we did that and everything that you're not supposed to do as I now know um, but it's actually a good way so we just wrote a really nice letter yeah sent the scripts off to the Old Vic and was were absolutely stunned <laughs> about four days later Kevin Spacey's office called us and said he'd read the script and he really liked it um, he was a bit busy but he really wanted to help us um and so he offered some advice he thought tom hollander would be great and it just so happened that baldwin was at oxford with somebody who knew, knew somebody who knew tom and it's one of those things and we just via those connections got the script directly to tom again didn't go through the agents and i was in the late district and tom called me yeah and just um, said he really liked the script. And he'd love to do it and so obviously we were thrilled um and then we were still looking for the doctor role yeah. and uh, Tom called me and he says have you found it?" yeah and we said we've got a list of people but not really anyone that's jumping out and he says well I've got a list of friends and he was, he was like I've got you know we could get Bill Nye, we could get Mark Ryland's uh, and then he mentioned Martin Freeman, who wasn't a friend, but somebody he's he really likes. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting, because I knew mean, Martin, obviously, from The Office. Yeah. This was all prior The Hobbit and Sherlock. It and is,
0: yeah, yeah. You kind of just got the way there, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Uh, and, um... But I'd also seen him in a few short films, so I knew that he did short films, and I knew he was a supporter of them. So I said, well, let, and I think the original script, The Doctor was an old guy, and I just thought, you know, if you make him younger, actually, it strengthens the story. So it was a story decision more than anything else, okay. as well as I liked Martin. And so Tom very kindly wrote to Martin's agent for us, and Martin then called me up and said he read the script and he loved it, and he really wanted to do something different. Now I know that what he, what he wanted was to play a doctor, because obviously he ends up playing Dr. Watson. <laughs> I'm not saying that he got the role because of Vorman. I'm not saying that at all. But I was talking with him the other day, actually. Yeah. And I just, look, I've I always have to say thank you to him and Tom because without you know the, that gesture of working with a basically a first-time filmmaker out of film school. Yeah. Uh, I would. I don't think I'd be here now. I know that. And you know, they're, they're very humble guys. And uh, yeah, so that's 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 the crazy. Just go ahead. Just
0: out, just out of interest, with that go-ahead thing, when when Kevin Spacey says, "Look, I'm busy," but I think you should contact Tom. Holland. So, is that how you, with your connections to the connections you had to Tom Holland, you say, "Look, uh, do this film." Kevin Spacey said you'd be good for this. Yeah. Do you want to read.
1: It's amazing, it's amazing what <laughs> Kevin Spacey says at the front of the sentence. <laughs> yeah. So and um, yeah, and that's as simple as that. And um, it sounds very simple, and it was, but you couldn't. I think it's just that total belief in what we were doing. And I think it was also... I remember someone asked... I think, something to, I think I remember someone asked Orson Wells about making Citizen Kane and he said, it's just ignorance. Because you just don't know any better. You just get on with it. And I think that's what we were like. We were just, you know what, we believe in what we're doing. And until somebody says, tells us no, we'll just keep carrying on. And so we did. Well, and that, I, read, you,
0: I, read in, um, I read in the book about Brown de Palma making bonfire vanities. And he talks a lot about this idea of once you enter the tunnel of making a film, the only way out is the end of the tunnel. You can't turn around. Oh yeah, <laughs>
1: oh yeah. So I've been in the Morrissey tunnel for about
0: four years. <laughs> so just 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 one last thing on formal problem, because this is this also this is quite a quite a cute story to go along with the uh, the, the joy you have got of casting these people is that you, the script you've done was an adaptation of a story within a Dave Mitchell novel. Is that right? Or a dream within a Dave Mitchell novel?
1: Yeah, it's from Number Nine Dream, and the young lad in it has a dream that he goes to a cinema with his father yeah. to watch a short film called Panopticon. And that short film is what we turned into the Bournemouth problem. So obviously you didn't have the rights to that, so tell us, tell us well, how no, you got the right. I, I mean, I don't I, I would never champion anyone else being this reckless, but we only did it because we were, we were under the impression that the rights were going to become available in about three or four months' time. Oh, right. So it, and suddenly we had this cast and the potential of having the rights. And Samir Borden just went, you know what, it's a risk. And the film might never, ever see the light of day, but we'll have made it. (laughs) So
0: uh,
1: what we did was that we just went ahead and did it. And then we found out that they decided to renew the option. So we were left in limbo, really, because we weren't adapting the book. David David Mitchell actually has described it as that we sampled it. <laughs> it's That's, like a, nice. That's nice, isn't it? It is, yeah. So, um, yeah, we didn't have the rights um, to put it out there, and so we sort of thought, you know, what we're going to do. And then s- somebody just gave us some advice that if you can get to the author, they'll help you. And we'd heard David was a nice guy, and I knew he was from the north of England. And Baldwin found out he was at a literary lunch, attending a literary lunch in Kensington, something like that. So and bought me a ticket and sent me off to, <laughs> to basically to doorstep him. Yeah. Which he did. And he just laughed when I first told him what I'd done. And he said, and where can I see this film? I said, it's on my laptop. And I've got it and there's some headphones. And so if you're free for 20 minutes after this, I want you to watch it. So we did. We went for a cup of tea at the v and And he sat and watched it. And he just took his headphones off and went, that is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to do everything I can to help. And he did. And between him and his agent, who... It was Tally Garner at the time who's now moved on to do other things. They spoke to Lee Thomas. And Lee was really understanding. He just thought he loved the film. He was really understanding. He says, Well, you know, give me a producer credit and you can do what you want. Well, that's and that's an easy decision to make it. <laughs> was, and it was great. And then after that, you know, we could start putting the film out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we were about to do it, and then Martin says, Why don't you just wait another six months because I've got the job at The Hobbit? And we were like, ooh. Okay. Mm. We've waited a year already, so we might as well wait another six months. And so we did, we waited, and then, you know, by that time I think Sherlock was coming out, Mm. and The Hobbit he'd been announced in. And so it was just serendipity, really, that we started putting the film out at the time that Sherlock was exploding. And then the the film, I think, I can't remember what year The Hobbit first came out, but it was around the same time that we got nominated for the BAFTA, or just Mm. after that. So obviously, Martin went through the roof, and interest in our film went through the roof. And it did loads of festivals all over the world. It's ridiculous how well, how well it did. And it didn't hurt having Martin and Tom in it, obviously. Of course, yeah. And then we got, you know, the Oscar nomination was just insane and brilliant and changed our lives um, in lots of ways, which is great. You know, you can't... To, to get recognised at that level, I know that people are a bit disparaging about the Oscars, and um, but... For new filmmakers trying to break through, any sort of recognition really helps, especially from your peers.
0: No, without a doubt. I mean, it's you. you uh, it, just walking through the tube station yesterday, before before I was having this conversation, it says, you know, it says it on the poster. You know, mm-hmm. those those BAFTA and Oscar don't, you know, are not meaningless, are they not? If you're gonna, if if because no, no, no. people, people won't know your name, will they yet? So what? What? It, right. it, it, you did direct the film, and that's the true fact. But if it says, you know, add those words BAFTA and Oscar. You know, yeah, it gives you, I understand what they do. I mean,
1: because it, 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 I first saw that in the trailer when, when they were sending the trailers for proof. Mm. I thought, oh, I'm not sure about that. No one gives a shit. But actually, the producers said, no, they don't give a shit about you. You're right there. But they give a shit that the director has actually been recognised like that. So he adds a bit of weight to the film. And the same thing with putting the producer of control on it adds that. This is going to be a, a serious film, hopefully, people think. Of course, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, then, let's get on to England is Mine, and thanks for going back down that memory lane for us there. That's that honestly, I've, I've wanted to get that story ever since you heard it, so I'm glad, <laughs> we got, I'm glad we got a chance to do it on the podcast. Um, So, England is Mine, Um, you're, you're Manchester based, you're Manchester, I guess you're from Manchester, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, i so t- Taking on. But so, are you aren't? You? Where are you from? Yeah, North Manchester, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah
0: so, so well, yeah. T- so, uh, Taking on such a such an icon of Manchester to do a film. I mean, I remember I, I remember hearing comments when um, Dave Aslan made that book about Manchester dreaming, and there mm. was it wasn't so much people going, yeah, someone's written a book about Manchester. Going, how dare he write a book about Manchester? You know, because Manchester's a bit of a funny city, and sometimes you know it's exciting and vibrant, but it's also it does it's not always good of tall poppies. So going in on a on a biopic about one of its icons is a is a, is a brave move on the first front. <laughs>
1: It's one thing, one way of describing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, go on, you, t- you, you tell me. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I'll, I'll tell
1: you all. It, it was when I grew up in Stratford, which is the same part of Manchester as Morrissey. In fact, I grew up about half a mile away. Yeah. And the Smiths happened when I was just hitting my teens. So I mean, I got I got into them just maybe about eighteen months before they split up. Okay. And I was aware of them to a degree. My uncle had made me aware of them. Um, he gave me the first album. And I, they didn't really register. But I mean, what difference did it make? did? Because I just thought the guitar was, was great. Mm. It was only really... I, I, I went to try and buy my own copies. Um, but they, they only had a hat full of hollow at Woolies in Stratford Precinct, as we used to call <laughs> it. And so I bought it on cassette and I had my warman with me. by the time I got home, I just thought... I'd never laughed so much at records for a start. And uh, I was I was in love, really. And my dad then told me that the gap of the single was from down the road. So the Smiths were a very pivotal uh, band and music in my life as a young man. And so the music stayed with me. It really has. And I think it does. Um, and so I always just felt um, that I could one day make something out of this. Because I had another career as a musician before. Okay. As a filmmaker, I did uh, for a long time and had some success with it. Um, and that was primarily again because you know, I, I mean, I fell in love with the Smith and I fell in love with Morris's words and his interest. But obviously, I fell in love with Johnny's guitar playing, so I became a guitar player. And um, I did that for a long time. And, and towards what, the end, what, what, what band were you in, by the way? Oh, God, do you remember? Um, there was a band called that Uncertain Feeling. Okay. Okay. Which was signed to Dead, Dead Good which was Steve Harrison's label for the Charlatans manager. Charlatans, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It, it was an imprint of Warner Brothers. So we were with them for three or four years, and it was just quite good. It was very small. In, you know, we did okay. I think we had a number one hit in the American college charts and stuff like that. And then after that, uh, Steve, who's still a good friend to this day, went on to manage Monaco, Peter Hook's <laughs> sound Project.
0: Yeah, my mate was a drummer for them.
1: Hey, Paul Keough? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You
1: know, I was the guitar player in Monaco for a bit.
0: <laughs> small world. Like, he's, out with yeah, the li- he's out with the lights at the moment, isn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and after that, I, I was in another band which Steve managed, which I was one of the co-writers and guitar player in that. We signed to Universal, so without having a stellar career, I had a career that I got to do all the touring, and play festivals, and do TV, mm. and that stuff. So, yeah, 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 uh, always under the radar, I think of you know, every, most people, mm. uh, apart from hard and music fans, is my guess. But I just got to the end of that point in my life, and I just thought, you know what, I'm not enjoying this anymore. And I'd always been into photography since I was a kid. And I'd always really been into films. And I'd never had a job, really. And <laughs> I'd always just been a musician. Uh, and I just thought, I'm going to go back to film school because I want to make a film about Morrissey. And it was always a plan. I had a plan. And unbelievably, well, not unbelievably, because, you know, we work hard at it. It's really? come to fruition. So that, those are the reasons, really. And, and I thought, I, I, I knew where I wanted to end it. I knew the, the meeting of Johnny... And Morrissey at the door—it's mm. incredibly romantic. I thought, and it was a natural full stop. I didn't want to take a telefilm, tell a story about the Smiths, because I think that would be incredibly difficult with both of them still alive, and I just think it'd be such a minefield. Uh, and... Yeah, because
0: it's no—it's no longer romantic, is it not? Because it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's more a. Uh... It's more a statement of, pa- of of facts and walking into differences of opinion, isn't it? If you start covering the singer's career,
1: I'm always fascinated, and I think a lot of people worldwide are fascinated about the guy who wrote those those early records and mm. from those first two albums in particular, and to and some degree, me, his *Murder*. You can hear the voice of Stephen, I think. I think you hear the frustrations of that young man growing up in Manchester, dreaming of wanting to, and wanting to be something else, not feeling like he fits in and why should he fit in. And I loved all that about Morrissey. I loved that defiance, you know, this, this idea that he's a wilting wallflower. I always find quite laughable because he's quite a big guy. Mm. And uh, But also the fact that, he, that the man just doesn't ever compromise. <laughs> Whether you agree with him or not, I can't think of anybody else around that has just dug his heels in and says, I'm going to do it my way. And if I make loads of enemies and I ruffle feathers, then so be it. And I found that incredibly fascinating. But when you started digging into his life, and his Irish background and his Irish family, I think he was the first English-born of his family, him and his sister, Jackie. Um, And so, yeah, I just just felt that there was a compelling story to be told about the birth of an artist, the birth of artistic struggle. So mm-hmm. was that
0: always that when when you say you, you wanted to make this film about him, which is what led you from music into film school? It was always about this this story of the the forming of this, the, the the coming to the forming of the Smiths
1: rather than the Smiths. That was always yeah. Like, always, always never ever considered making a Smiths film ever. Now,
0: yeah. now, one, now one of the things that, that one of the reasons and I brought the Manchester dreaming thing. Obviously, Dave Aslam's not from Manchester, and that was obviously one of the criticisms of. People like to throw at him, like he's from Stoke, which you know is not a million miles away. But obviously, he couldn't possibly know anything, which is kind of surreal. But obviously, you're you're saying you're you're living half a mile from where Morrissey grew up, so therefore you know you know the territory, like you're born and bred there, so you know it. How Mm. how did you get how did you get the distance away from knowing to be able to tell a story about
1: someone being from there, as it were? Well, I've not lived there for. I moved out. i there for over twenty years. So, okay. um, I mean, I still live in Manchester, but I live out. I live out in the uh, in Cheshire. Which okay. is a, what we all aspire to in Manchester. <laughs> so, I just, I,
0: just went, I went to London. I just was like North Manchester. I could have gone south of the city, but then I went. Just went to Manchester. Just went to yeah,
1: London instead. I went to London for a bit. And I loved it, <laughs> but I came back to do some work because you could just park in London forever. Um, so, yeah, I think. I think one of the things about being a director, it's not, it's not all on me. Do you know what no. I mean? It's like my my DP Nick, is interesting. He, so I had to, I always have to approve things. So I have to approve all the interviews for the EPK and the behind the scenes stuff for the DVD. And listening to people, it's really uncomfortable when people are talking about you. Yeah. Well, listening to Nick, like the, making this film was the first time he'd ever come to Manchester. Oh, so okay. I got that real he saw it in a completely different way than to how I saw it, maybe. And I think that helps. And I think my production designer was from, Helen's from Sheffield. Um, So, but I, yeah, I think the distance thing was was easy, really. And also, I think, you know I'm not saying no other director could have done this, because they could. I just think it gives me an insight Mm. into the landscape and the people and the humour that other people um, may not have had. I'm not saying they, they couldn't have done it. But, no, it was interesting to go back. It was interesting to go back to Stratford and and to revisit those places and be quite alarmed at how little has changed in some ways. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it was for me, it, it was a, it was a story I just felt I could tell. Mm. And, I, and going back to the why I never thought about making about the Smiths, I can't, I, can, I couldn't relate to Morrissey as the icon. But I could relate to Morris as the young man trying to do something with his life. I can tell that story. Mm. I understand that story. My actor understood that story. And for me, that was the more compelling story about how anybody tries to make anything of their lives in a society that wants to make you black everybody else. And for me, that was became the sort of central heartbeat of the film.
0: Yeah, because I suppose telling the story of what fame does to somebody is a bit kind of nebulous, isn't it? Whereas the story of how someone strived to... To break out from what they were meant to be, what they were meant to, or what they perceived to be what they were meant to be, is is a journey, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we always described him as a drowning man, um, and like any drowning person, they cling to things, they grab at things. And Stevens was music, obviously, and books and poetry and films, but also it was his mum, strong women, and he was, oh, his life is littered with strong women. Um, it's not just his mum; he comes from a very big. Matriarchal Irish family. Right. And I'm led to believe that his mum is still alive and still very important in his life, and he has aunts uh, in the UK and in the States who are very important to his life. So he's been surrounded by these Irish mammies and you know, I came across them growing up as a kid. And Simone, who plays Elizabeth in our film, is again is, is an Irish mummy herself, and so she, you, you know, very very strong and very very perceptive women. And I think. That had a great bearing. I well, like all men. You know, the, the mother is probably the defining female relationship of their lives. Of somehow. course, yeah. In, in in the
0: in the research uh, aspects of the of pulling the screenplay together, obviously you're going back to a place that you're familiar with. What mm. what in investigating Morris's sort of story, what did you did you did you find any surprises yourself about Stretford that you, you weren't aware of before going into this project?
1: What well, is it? Just as a landscape.
0: Well, just, just, or any, any, any it's cultural, cool. any cultural findings, anything, you know, what, 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 did you discover something new that you didn't know about a place you grew up in?
1: Well, I didn't realise that, that, yeah, I didn't realise that the, uh, we used to have a high street, because doesn't have one, it okay. just, it, it doesn't exist, they have, I think they, like a lot of places, they demolished the central high street and built these godforsaken precincts and Arndale censors, and. Stratford is one of the worst and it's dying on its arse unless they do something with it. No, is,
0: um, it, is, is it like... I've not, you know, not been. I mean, it's like Salford Precinct then, that kind of thing? What did you do there? No, it's,
1: it's, it's more like a, a mini Arndale. Ah, OK. Just, it's more like that. And, okay. um So, yeah, I was surprised about that. I, it was interesting looking at the history of the local cinema um which is just across the road it's, it's this old art deco thing it's still standing that no one's ever done anything with it i think it's a listed building the history of that and the different ownership so those things were quite interesting we ended up calling the film production company because every film has to have a specific uh, vehicle yeah 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 calling it the assaulto o- 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 pictures after the assaulto o- o- cinema um and i don't think no i didn't discover anything because obviously i'd been doing the research for ages and i in, with regards to Morris himself, you know, he, he did so many interviews early on mm. that it was a case of just going back and rereading copious amounts of him talking about growing up. And he did speak about his mum and his dad and what they did and what their relationship was like. And, um, and yeah, so there was lots of that type of research. And where, where I grew up in Stretford, my neighbours at the back, I think the lad who was one of my neighbour got married to one of Morris's cousins. So I, could, I connected with those again, and I connected with uh, Billy Duffy from the cult. who was in The Nosebleeds with Morrissey before the Smiths, and I connected with a few other people around that circle of friends. Um, uh, I, know, so, I know a lot of it, and some of it's just plain invention because you just don't know what happened. You have to just invent stuff. I know that he works at the Inland Revenue, but we couldn't find anybody who worked with him, so we just had to create... An environment that we just thought would be quite amusing to see him working in. So, so in in
0: a way, you've you've you've
1: constructed
0: this story from what you're able to get from what's in the public domain and people you speak to getting stories, and then like you say, filling in blanks where necessary. You've not you've not sort of taken a, a story that already exists and gone. This character and Morris, we're going to tell.
1: You've constructed it from what you've been able to yeah. find. Yeah, right? and constructed it from very specific moments in time that we knew exist, that we knew oh, happened. Like we okay. knew he went to that Sex Pistols gig, yeah. and we knew he didn't like it. We knew he worked at on Revenue. Hmm. Uh, we knew that uh, his dad left when he was about 15, 16. We knew that Johnny knocks on the door. Yeah. We knew that he suffered from depression and was on medication for it. Um, so we just they became our anchor points, and and then you start just building a picture from there, and, and you try and give it drama, and um, you try and give it moments of tension. But you know it is a it is a quieter film. It's not it's not walk the line. You know. It's,
0: uh... <laughs> how how do how do you stop yourself? I mean, because it it must be really exciting and and, and, and never ending interesting to be to be doing the research. When when did you? How did you sort of call time on that and go, enough's enough, we need, to, we need to make this into a screenplay, as it were, so we can make the movie? Would you, did, you, did you, how did you avoid that one?
1: You know, I don't think we did it, because I think we're finding out things even towards production. I think Billy came in, we, we'd only, I think there was a draft of the script already kicking around in yeah. 2014. Right. First draft. Um, and we were already getting interest from Hanway. Who are now who are now our sales agents, right. and um, I met Billy in LA. I was out there for the Oscars, and he he started just telling me stories I didn't I didn't even know. So suddenly you're just thinking, and, and there were stories that built on character. They right. started developing okay. mm. Stephen as a character. Yeah,
0: uh,
1: and they found their way into the film because that's when you start getting start talking to people who actually knew him and actually spent time with him. Mm. That starts shaping the character, and that's the way that I work with Will, who's my co writer, is that. He, You know, he is brilliant at characterisation and um, whereas my strengths are story and and, and structure to, do it to a degree. So we, we complement each other brilliantly. So, but you, I was coming back with these stories and telling Will them and Will would then take them and turn them into absolutely... There's a, the scene with Billy in the bedroom when Morris slags off the clash is just hilarious. It's just... Cause, it's just only only Will could have written a line like he does, <laughs> right. but it says a lot. But it says a lot about the character of who he is. He's striving to be something he's not quite there, and it's certainly not going to wash with somebody like Billy Duffy. Um, so, yeah, th- those sorts of things. We, you know, you just you just get a point where. It, it, it comes to a natural point where you think, yeah, there's a good shape to it now. Um, we did have a big section which we cut out, mostly due to budget. Of, of his childhood, it was about the first fifteen minutes of the film would have been about set in the sixties. Yeah, and and it explored the relationship with his mum a lot closely. Um, but just budget, we had to cut it, and and then work out how we could strengthen that relationship in other places in the film, which you know, I think it's been to the film's benefit actually for it to be more focused. So.
0: What 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 do you remember being the sort of biggest storytelling challenges for the pair of you when you when you were concocting this
1: um, structure, really? Okay. Uh, we we ended up using a script editor. We got advice to use a script editor. It's yeah. probably the best thing we ever did because um, William is actually a novelist. Um, he's got two novels published already, and he's writing his third now. And okay, I'm, I'm by. Default probably. I sit more in the director side. If I'm splitting, I'm not really exactly split in the middle. I'm, I think I'm more of a director than a writer. Okay. But I, I mean, I don't enjoy the writing process. I'm saying I hate the writing process. But I do enjoy exploring my own stories. So um, we all yeah, like
0: we all like having written. Nobody likes writing.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> it's, it's horrible.
1: And um, I think we just knew we had the character, and we knew, we had some lovely moments and set pieces, and we just brought a script editor in called Linda Aronson. It okay. really... Kick the shit out of us. <laughs> she did. Is, that a, nice. is, that, is that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, it was because m- most people are off, off of notes and criticisms based on their own what they would have done, whereas Linda looks at other films that, you, that are comparable to what you're trying to do okay. and, sees, and explores and sees why they work. And then, yeah, she has a very, really interesting process that she takes you through. And she doesn't take just me through it and work, she takes the producers through it. And oh, it's interesting. Really, really interesting that we all like we all thought we were making a different film. And suddenly, Okay, so
0: let's just, let's just stop there. So, what she does actually is, is try and find out that you're all on the same page before you even yeah. move forward, as it were.
1: Almost. Yeah, because you have to know what your film is about thematically. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. That's really interesting. We got great stories and we had great characters, but we didn't really know what the structure was and we didn't really know what we were saying. We didn't know what the film was about. And what she noticed is that I was there was this water. Water just kept cropping up all the time. And it was Linda, really, that just said, your film is about a drowning man.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Just, as the director, obviously, I started just seeing images straight, straight away. And then you just, from that point, you connect the dots. And I think ours is called, a, is it called a flashback narrative? I can't think what it's called. No. Well, you, you come in at the second at turning point, and then you, you flash back all the way through it and pick it up from where you came in. It's a bit like what Shine does with Jeffrey Rush. Okay, that's okay, got you, got you, got you. Uh, yeah, so it's just called Flashback Narrative. So uh, she identified that, and that's what we, we were trying to do something like that. And uh, she helped us with that. She helped us with the structure. But really, it was just you know she, she doesn't pull any punches because it, it's hard to write good scripts. It really is hard work, and there's no time. The kid gloves, so Linda would say, really instrumental in helping me and Will develop as writers, but also helping us be a little bit more rigorous with ourselves when we're right, when we're doing the new one now. So,
0: is that the kind of experience where she's like your um, training wheels, and now you could go off and do it your own, or is she the kind of influence that you would bring in on the next script to make her do the same? due Diligence on your script with you?
1: I think so, yeah. I think I think we get to a stage where, you know, we've not, even, at the moment, we're just writing a treatment. we got a development deal for a new film, which is incredible. We're really thrilled yeah. to be working again straight away. Um, and it's a much more complex piece we're doing. And she's already fired warning shots across our bowels that you have, you know, what you're taking on again is why don't you guys ever do anything that's simple? <laughs> but. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're at the treatment stage now. We um, just delivered the treatment. We're doing sort of a polish on it and uh, index carding before we go to draft. But, yeah, if we felt that she was needed, we'll bring her in. Brilliant. Because I, I think you do need that complete objectivity. Because, obviously, my producers on the new film will read the script. And they're involved in the process. So they get... Attached to it, even though they're not privy to every conversation that I have with Will, do get attached to it and lose that freshness which someone like Linda would bring. And she would, you know, be scrutinising it and looking for the faults, essentially.
0: I've done. I've done a similar. I did a similar exercise with an organisation called Sources Two, which was it wasn't so much where you're you going into production with the script. It was that it's the development part of the script, and we were five projects around the table. But it was sometimes producers and writers together. And it was interesting to see it expose where people thought they were making two different films and that by the end of the process they were unified on
1: making the same film. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes from the theme, I think, Once you know what... Because it, that's one of the things that I learned on, on courses, that knowing the difference between what your theme is, what your narrative is, and what your story is. Yeah. So, they're different things, and and your plot is, is something else on top. So... But I think why you're making the film and what you think you've got to say is actually what should be the, what's driving every decision and how the character stories and the plot, everything relates to that. Um, yeah, so that's what we learn and that's what we're, you know, we're doing again now. It's a bastard question, isn't it? Why are you, make, why are you making this story? Why now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. But I felt, I, I don't know, maybe I just felt uh, with, with England is Mine. It's just something I, I was absolutely compelled to do it. I just felt I thought some, one day someone's going to make a film about Morrissey. I'm just going to get in there and do it. To us. No, no,
0: no, no, and uh, congratulations for forget, getting there. Um, yeah. So with with it being a period piece,
1: yeah,
0: and obviously budgets are not are not infinite,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and Manchester's landscape has changed amazingly. In the in certainly it's been on steroids in the last since I've been I've been in London since '99, and every time I go back, I don't recognise the place.
1: Yeah. And so I me mean, I, I mean, I used to live in Hume, that's yeah. where I moved, from. and it's, I, it's, I mean, my office was in. We had an office in Parsonage Gardens behind House Fraser, right. and now I live out in Cheshire, and my office is just behind Dean's Gate Station, so I'm right on the edge of the city. Yeah. And if I cannot go in for a month and it's changed, it's incredible. Now what's going on in the city? And it's great, but it still has its problems. But it's it's, it's definitely a more livable city than it's ever been.
0: So, so with that in mind, though, how did you set up? What were the challenges to to capture the the Manchester of
1: of the period you're doing? Well, yeah, I mean, we we decided I decided that you know I would go and explore the area that it all took place in and see if it, that was feasible to right. actually shoot in that area. And, as you know, the city centres might change. Suburbs are a bit slower to change. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Stratford certainly hasn't changed that much. You know, the the old subways, actually, weirdly, the old subways, I think about two or three months after we shot in them, they got filled in. It was incredible. The hospital we shot in in Altrincham got demolished a week after we finished filming in it. That's quite quite poignant, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) a lot of the stuff that we shot, even down to that we shot on a bridge, not... Uh, and they've replaced the street lights already from mm. the yellows to these new led things so the landscape is, is beginning to change so it's a case of just going back and seeing what was feasible and just the size of the canvas because i felt it was a very interior story anyway okay. so even you know morrissey growing up in that period where he lived on king's road in Stratford, he only had to walk half a mile to the hard rock music venue where he would watch david bowie and roxy music and I mean, the New York Dolls cancelled, I think, the day you actually went to see him, unfortunately for him, but um, so how often he'd have gone into town, I'm not sure, and music venues at that point weren't in town, so the Electric Circus was in Collyhurst, and the Twisted Wheel was in uh, Bellevue, so none of them were actually in the city centre, and so a lot of this story takes place in the suburbs, and it's like I say, it's quite interior, because Stephen's quite an interior character, right. and so the real challenge, I think, from a production design point of view, was finding the house. Because, I mean, I knew the house you grew up in. Mm. Uh, and you just couldn't film them because they're so small. You know, i got a crew of 70 people every day for five weeks. And I think 10 days of that shoot were in this house. And you just wouldn't have fitted it. So the challenge was just to find something that we felt was feasible, and um, what happened, to it, I, think I, and I think, I actually found the house, I was on right move, I was just scouring right move one day, and found this old house, which was just looking at it, it hadn't been changed since the 70s, it was an old lady who passed on and um, left it with pretty much the original fireplace, the original wallpaper, the original Good washing Good line in the kitchen to hang the washing up. The original cupboards from the seven—it was incredible, and it was a four-bedroom house, and it was perfect because we could use it for all of Stephen's house, Billy's bedroom, and Johnny's bedroom. So it was an incredible find, and the production designer just worked on what was there. She already had a very strong um, palette to start with, so that was the biggest thing. And the other things were things like. Um, Again, we just got really lucky. Stretford Civic Hall, which is next to the Arndale Centre, is this beautiful old Gothic building, which is the local community had brought it back, and they, well, they were on the verge of losing it. And along we come with, with, to offer them some money, which would not only gives us a production unit base and about seven sets inside this building, but also saves them. So oh, that's, nice. that's a great story. Yeah, it sort of leaves a little bit of a legacy there because they've, they've now they're now thriving because of the money that the film put in. And we got, so we got all the production office in there, all the costume department, makeup department, camera stores. And we filmed about seven or eight scenes in there. So all the inland revenue stuff in the basements in there. the gig, the, the, uh, the club, the ra- we recreated rafters in the basement, rehearsal rooms in the basement. Uh, we did the sex pistols gig in the ballroom upstairs. We did a, and then we redressed the ballrooms for another set, So we really made the most of it, and luckily Streatford-Arndale across the road has offices above it, and the top floor was empty, and they allowed us. So we took over that as well, and we recreated the inland revenue in there. So I think 90% of what we shot was within a one-mile radius. So when you've got that type of solution, you've not got unit moves, so you've got more time. I've got to say, you're a producer's friend, you,
0: aren't you, with that kind of...
1: Yeah, well, I think that's what directors need to be, really. I don't know, I just... And every day I would have production meetings where they'd be told, you can't have this, you can't have that, and there's no point kicking the screening because I knew the limitations with what we were working on. So I just would sit down with my DP and my production designer and I would find a creative solution. And weirdly, some of them were better than the original ideas, so... Uh, it, it just just becomes a case of getting on with it, really.
0: Now, now a big a big part of doing a Morrissey biopic is is uh, is obviously casting Morrissey, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's fascinating now seeing seeing obviously Jack Jack Loud- is it Loudon? You pronounce it Loudon. Flat- yeah, yeah. Loudon. Um, Twelve months earlier, playing a young Tony Benn in the <laughs> United Kingdom as well. So <laughs> Nothing if not versatile. So, yep. what, what what's your uh, was, it, was, he, was he an easy find, or was finding Morrissey as hard as making the film, almost?
1: Uh, yeah, it was. It was difficult, because there was two school of thoughts. Do we want to cast somebody who looks like Morrissey? Which was very much one school of thought from one of the producers. Uh, to me, just going, I just want the best actor I can get. Mm-hmm. I don't care what he looks like. you know. Yeah. So, um, and so we did search. It took about six months. We did We saw a lot of people, um, a lot of self tapes, and um, Jack sent in the most bizarre tape. That's cool. what it was. I remember thinking, "This is this guy's nuts. What's he doing?" But what he was doing was just taking what he thought on the page. He'd not even looked at what he how he spoke or anything, and he just did his own thing. It's just I just thought, well. It's nowhere. I, I can't judge it because, but all I do know is that he's had the balls to do something different. Because there was a lot of horrible Morrissey pastiches with lots of head flopping around and talking, and really trying to mimic the voice. Yeah. Um, whereas Jack did something different. And you know, there was. There was we, we narrowed it down to a few people to 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 bring them back for a recall. Yeah. Uh, and I know I really have to thank my casting director Shaheen Beg, because she really pushed jack she, she I says i just don't know what he's doing i don't know and she goes, no. let's just get him in the room trust me and he got him in the room and i was immediately struck by his intelligence i just thought god he's a sharp lad um and he's got, he's the right height because morris is quite tall um and i just just we just had a conversation and he did a couple of scenes for me and i thought right okay well i want to screen test him uh, and Jack was obviously petrified, because by, by this point Jack really wanted the role, he was desperate, because I think he'd done some research into what the scope of the film could be, um, but he was he was really hung up the fact that he didn't look like him, and I says I don't care, that and I showed him a picture, an early picture of Morrissey with the long hair, and I went that's what you're going to look like for 95% of this film, so don't worry, he was, and that's, I think that took a bit of pressure off for him and then um, we screen tested him uh, with a few other people and he just sparkled It's as simple as that as soon as I'd done the screen test with him I just wanted to stop but I didn't want to see anybody else but you know you have to and it's it's not fair but because your heart's already been you know already in love with an actor Um, what he did was bring Stephen to life in front of me I just felt that there was a vulnerability there and a strength which comes from Jack himself you know Jack is a like that as a human being You know Like as we all are And Jack isn't afraid To access and channel Those things Onto the screen for you And so And so we Yeah Jack came on board About a year before we shot it So what was great Is that I got to spend A year with Jack Talking to him Bringing him to Manchester Taking him round Getting him familiar With the Smiths Getting him familiar with, And it was, he had moments Of absolute panic In that year Thinking oh my god This guy's an absolute icon and It was just a case you're not playing that basically. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Age you know And uh, Yeah Yeah I, I think we couldn't have got anybody, anybody better
0: it's interesting, it's interesting, isn't it because you're right you you're asking him to play a dreamer from Stretford yeah. when in fact obviously the perception is I'm playing the guy that that basically laid the template down for British indie music and which is a whole different ball
1: game isn't it yeah exactly and Jack you know says you can do this because you're a dreamer from the borders of Scotland. <laughs> and it doesn't matter, a, dreamer, a dreamer's a dreamer so with ambitions and insecurities and all those things, so you know, you can do that and he did, he brought a lot to it, Jack, you know, I love working with actors that are brave and, and offer me things, I know I said it to every one of my casts. I'm not always going to have the answers, you know, the director don't expect me to have the answers we'll find it together And it's only now that I realise that that's almost like manner from heaven for an actor to hear that from a director to say, let's work together on this and find it, let's try things why not? And I think that sh- that bears fruit in all the performances. I think every single performance, just to somebody with one line, bears out. We you know we cast it brilliantly, and they all delivered. Because I just think they all enjoyed working on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you you from a from a directing point of view, yeah. and I'd imagine given given the the small radius of, of sets you were working on, you were you were pretty much working with your actors on on sort of on, on a on a fast turnover basis for the shoot yeah um as in everything was happening quickly not that you were rushing through it it was um yeah. what what's your what's your approach to to your directing yeah. are, are you are, have you got an autocratic bent here are you are you looking to see what they bring are you waiting to see what they bring and then directing what what's what's your what's your, <laughs> your, what's your instinctive approach once you're on set?
1: With the actors, you mean? Yeah, 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 with the actors, yeah. We do a lot of talking beforehand. We did do a read-through. We did okay. a bit of, it wasn't a rehearsal. We just did one read-through. Hmm. So anybody, any questions could get them out. We could chat about certain things. Okay. Um, what I like to do is I, I like them to show me what... that you know. I have an idea of what I think the scene is. Yeah. And then they have an idea of what they think the scene is. And sometimes they they'll surprise me and they'll do something I wasn't expecting, which is better than I could have hoped for. So we'll go with that. Other times it's so far away from what I think the scene should be. It's just a case of talking to bring them closer to that point. Um, I tend to go on set. Sometimes I know exactly what I want in terms of, I know, um, again, this also bears out my relationship with my DP. Mm. Sometimes I'm very specific about what I want in terms of the shot and the move, etc. But there are other times where I left it completely open, which used to drive my first AD up the wall because she'd <laughs> set up that, and i just go, I don't know, because I, I, I need to get on there with the answers and see what we're going to do. And I could just see the colour drain from her face. Uh, if she lived, she, I don't think she lived for those moments. And so, yeah, there are other times, which I probably bear... Probably some of my influences, I guess, uh, bears out because of the things I've learned and picked up from listening to other directors talk and watching the results of that. Is sometimes if you don't know what to do, actually just let the actors do their thing first, and then knowing where to put the camera becomes pretty obvious. And I think those are some of my favourite scenes the scenes we didn't plan because there's a real visceral quality to them. But I always know what I want, um, but I allow room for surprise. I think that's really important. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not autocratic, but I, I also do know what I want. So yeah, that's, that's, that's a cl- having clarity is not the same,
0: is it? I suppose. No,
1: no, exactly. So that's that's yeah. Um, and yeah, we just we, we work through it, and they just essentially they learn to trust you as a director because you're the first set of eyes on it. You, know, you have to scrutinise their performance, and you're just asking yourself if you believe it. Do you believe that's a human being in front of you? Do you believe that? Because once it's lit, and once the, the moods are established, and all those things, I just switch off from of them and watch the performances, because that's what you want the audience to do. You shouldn't really. You, know, the, you should be watching the actors, and then the beautiful photography and everything else just complements that and works in sync with it. So, yeah, that's that's how I like to work with them. And I spent a bit of time in theatre as well, so I, I've sort of picked up that process of collaborating with actors because they're the, they're the most important thing for me, really.
0: Well, it's what we all see, isn't it? I, yeah, mean, exactly. I, know, I know there's a whole science and, and and technical craft going on to make what we see beautiful and sound great, but, yeah. but yeah, ultimately, we're going to judge what they do as, as what makes the film interesting and engaging, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely, so you you coming from um, obviously being from Manchester, coming from a music background, doing a biopic about a music icon. Mm. What did 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 your experiences of being in a band lend you any authority in making this film? Do you feel?
1: Yeah, I think so because I knew exactly um, how I wanted the gigs to look and sound. Because one of my problems that I have had with some music biopics is that I just think it all looks t- too polished and it all sounds too polished and there's not enough smoke. <laughs> he doesn't look like this sweat running down the walls. Um,
0: and how, how did you avoid sort of, obviously, because the, the, obviously there's key moments in time on 24-hour party people, which obviously yeah. overlap with what you're doing. Mm. And that was already a vision of what, I mean, obviously that played as a fantasy vision itself, but clearly it was still basing itself on key moments and obviously control as well, I suppose.
1: Um, yeah. they both could all three films deal with the Sex Pistols constantly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what what was great for me is that I knew that Morrissey hated it because he went home and wrote a letter to the enemy mm. about it, and it got published. So I knew that the focus was very different from those other films because obviously in Control it blew them away and they went on to form Joy Division. Same thing in Twenty Four Hour Party People. And, you know, they they made it the gig that changed the world, and it was a very different approach. And mm. and what I did, and in Control you didn't see the pistols. You just heard them and you saw the response from the band. But what I did is that I wanted to show that Stephen is torn between hating them and being jealous of them. Um, I always feel that's like something. So I know it's a peculiarly Mancunian thing. It's not enough for us to be successful, it's just that no one else is allowed to be good either. I think I know that that's, it just seems to bear out, especially musicians. Oh, without um, a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, so, the fo- we literally just focused the camera on Stephen and me and Nick set up these fragmented mirrors behind the bar, which then reflect the pistols back onto him. So it became a very different type of shot and a very different type of moment. And my music choice at that moment is very contrary. I don't. You do hear the pistols a little bit, but it, there is a music choice in there which is very, very different. Um, which, as put, you know, uh, again, it, it, some of my music choices have pulled the rug from under. Purposely pulls the rock band people.
0: Do you mean what? Do you mean it's not the pistols then? The, your, your music choice. You, you no, he's
1: your... proceeding it. He's in his bedroom, cutting out the pistols thing, put it on his wall of a forthcoming game. He puts a record on, which then cuts to the pistols, and ah, what the re- okay. record? he puts on is George Formby. Beautiful. And also, so, I mean,
0: well, you, what you've described though to me is is a is that lovely thing about. It's, it's a, the, the scene's about the, the character's reaction, not about what the not, as long as we know what they're watching how, yeah, they, have, how they're reacting is what we want to know, isn't
1: it? You know, it's all about character and for yeah. him he's, you know, he's desperate to do that, but you can see how much he doesn't like it and yet yeah, you can see all the conflict through, the, through what Jack's doing, through the choice of the music that I did and through the camera movie it's very simple camera push Onto Jack, uh, and then which then follows him straight to the bar, and then moves to the mirror. So it's all one seamless move, but it tells you a lot about his state of mind without saying a bloody word, really. Which is what that's what cinema's great, at, I think. Totally, totally. Now, one last question for you. Yeah. Uh, and I guess you're going to get asked
0: this a lot, aren't you? Um, I'm guessing that Morris has not seen this yet. Uh, well, no, no, uh, <laughs> that I'm aware of. Um. <laughs> so, so what do you? I mean. Just as a kind of bit of fun, what do you anticipate would be his? Because you've obviously got under the skin of who he was, of trying to get under the skin of who he was that led to the Smiths. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know the public figure, and you know he's 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 a bit he's a, he's a he if he was Mar when he started. God knows what he is now. Um, <laughs> what did what do you and what would you anticipate his reaction to this would be?
1: Um, yeah, I have been asked it a lot, um, and I still don't have a very good answer. Um, you know, he's been aware of the film for a long time because yeah. we announced it, and we've done everything we can. We've been very respectful. We've, you know, approached the varying managers he's had in the last few years. He's had a few different managers. Yeah. Uh, we spoke to his agents; they're aware of it, uh, and so we've done everything. And I wrote to him via different routes. And Understandably, he's decided to remain to I don't know, remain a sort of cautious and quizzical distance from it, because um, yeah. it must be bloody weird to know that someone's making a film about you. Yes, um, but I think I think he I think he will know because of the interviews that I've done, um, and I'm led to believe it, I'm led to believe through a very uh, mutual acquaintance now that he has seen some of my interviews and seen some of the reviews, uh, and so of the family. Uh, so I'm led to believe, um, and he's remained very quiet about the film. I think he's just going to wait and see. Um, I think if the film came out and it would have, would have been a stinker, which is most certainly not that, um, then he probably would have lots to say. But I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I expect him to say. I mean, I mean, I hope that it must be really difficult. You know, if he can be objective about it and, and see it as you know that's a good film, it's completely factually inaccurate. <laughs> Then, then that's fair enough. But, you know, his version of the story would be different from Johnny's version of the story or Billy's version of the story. I can only tell my version of the story. And what I've tried to do is make him walk and talk and react like a human being, um, and one with a lot of heart and one with a lot of drive. And so hopefully you'll recognize, he might recognise an ounce of himself in it. He might recognise a bit of the relationship with his mum. Um, but, you know, so far he's not said anything and I don't expect him to come out and do what that guy did. One of his friends came out, well, one of his old friends came out and gave us a bit of a on the internet and uh, then that disappeared because he got a mutual shooing back off social media. But <laughs> 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 get that. You know, it comes with the territory that people have. You know, he has very strong opinions. He divides opinions. and You know, we've just tried to, we'll, we'll remain sort of respectful. We will remain fans of the music. Um, I'll never forget the impact that his words had on my life. So, um, if he likes it, then great. If he doesn't, then you know the film's out there. It'll find a home. It's already finding a home. People are responding well. So, I just hope the Smiths don't get that together. That would be a disaster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Actually, just it made that that your, your your description there just 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 led me to want to one more question. Um, is that um, how did because because obviously that that my questions, presupposes there's some sort of approval needed for Morrissey, which, is a, which isn't true at all. Mm. So how did you manage to keep that demon from you of I'm not making this for Morrissey, I'm making this because I want to tell the story, because I think mm. it's interesting. How did you keep that devil off your back, as it were?
1: Um, well, you know, I've been, so I just looked I at my own life, I think. Mm. There's a little bit of me in the film, there's a little bit of Jack in the film. And hopefully that's what the audience will watch it and say a bit of themselves. Because that's why I think the music did brilliantly. I think for me, another sort of ambition with the film is that if we can make a film that in some small way makes anybody watching it feel like they did when they listened to one of those records, because they, they recognise themselves in the film, like millions of people recognise themselves in the, the music and the words – then I think that would be a success, and that's what we really tried to do, we just thought, let's just try and make this a really genuine and honest film, Um, and it is a bit of a love letter to Manchester, and it is a little bit of a love letter to the Smiths in that period, but it's it's also a a love letter to to a new generation of young people who are trying to find their way in the world, and that you can be a little bit defiant in the face of you know, authority and society telling you how you should live your life. And I said it before the other day to somebody that, you know, you've got a generation of people now with the Brexit thing, whatever people think about it. there is a, It's the young generation that feel, we're going to feel the impacts of this. Yeah, they're
0: going to pay for it, aren't they? How are they going to do
1: what they want with their lives? And in the end, you just have to take that sort of defiant stand and just go, you know, sod it, I'm going to, England is mine, essentially, which is what, you know, I always took from that song always took those lyrics and just thought you know what life is for grabbing hold of mm. like it did and like i did and, and if the film can do that i mean that's how i kept it at bay essentially because i thought I was, i'm making a film that's bigger than that don't
0: yeah no that's that's the and i, I, I think that's that, that's that, that's very resilient of you i think i don't think i could have been i don't think i could have been something so so big in my life as well as someone like mm-hmm. morrissey i think i would have I would have uh, got crushed by it. So, congratulations on on keeping that at
1: bay and getting yourself. Yeah, I, well, he's just Stephen to me in this film. I don't even that's weird. It, it's always like a, even I watched it for the first time in a long time, really, when we were, uh, we closed Edinburgh. Right. And it was, right. So it's the first time I watched it with you know two thousand people. Wow. And wow. it played so fantastically in the room and the response. They had, they laughed at every beat and they were laughing at things that I, I never thought they'd laugh at. And you could, there's a scene with his mum where. You could hear a pin drop, and and I, th- I think that, for me, was was massively important, and uh, just to have that experience of watching that film like that, I just think, yeah, oh, God. That, that, I mean, that's what it, it made It made it all worth it, anyway.
0: Well, look, thank you very much for uh, taking time to come and talk to us on the Britfist podcast about England is Mine. You're welcome. Uh, um, on the posters I saw in the tube, we've got, August the fourth as a release date. I'm talking to you Thursday the twentieth of July, so yeah. uh, we'll get this. This will go out before well before then. Um, yeah, it's going everywhere.
1: Oh, we're really thrilled with what you want to do, and they're really supporting the film. It's going to a lot of places.
0: That's exciting. A British a British film. You know, you know, not to, not to be you know, not to be Brexit about it, but you know, there is there is a challenge there for all British filmmakers to get get seen. And if you've yeah. managed to break through that somehow, then you know, hats off to you.
1: No, no, uh, yeah. I mean, I was very aware that the film comes with a market. So. <laughs> so, market, market is everything, as I'm beginning to find out. Well, no, I mean, you know,
0: all, everything's a commercial decision as well as an artistic yeah. one. If, it, it, it wouldn't be a film business if it wasn't.
1: No, quite.
0: Well, look, congratulations on your film. Uh, I look forward to seeing it. And, and again, it was a really interesting chat uh, talking through it. It's uh, you know, it's my, it's the, the city I grew up in, so it's it's always it's always fun to see to see it reflected in film, because um, obviously it isn't it isn't as common as other as, as say London might be, uh, yeah. in in British movies. So it's always nice to see that even because those those period details, as much as it's about Stephen Patrick Morrissey, it's still got it's still looking at Manchester and how it was, and it was one of the main. I mean, even though Twenty Four Hour Party People was a bit of a kind of nod and a wink to what it was about. It still, it still made me feel warm inside. You know what? Seeing that kind of vision of what it must have been like and and what it could have been like, you know. And I think yeah. that's what film allows you to do, doesn't it? I mean, we could be a dreamer with Stephen, can't we? For the film, I guess.
1: Well, that's that's the hope for me. That's that's all. I, that's all I want is that that people um, just see an amount of themselves in there. And I think that's that would for me. That's, you know, I knew there was, like I said, I knew there was a Smith's audience and a Morrissey audience, and I know that it's global, and I know that it's fanatical, but I was making a film for beyond that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had to try and make something that was a little bit more ambitious than just trying to pander to those there's there's enough in there for the fans trust me there's enough enough hidden easter eggs in there to keep Smith's fans occupied for months
0: well best of luck with the release and what comes with it thanks shit if you don't already subscribe to Britflix just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly thank you